Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the continuing existing ancient Norse god, Duncan Nickel. Welcome back to the show, Dunk. What have you been up to in the past two weeks? Oh, reading American Gods, mate. It's been quite a thick book to get through. There were moments of doubt, but I finally got there. Oh, I also put up my new bookshelf. Very exciting for me. That's 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 really exciting stuff, Duncan. No, I'm seriously. glad you managed to get through it in time. I'm surprised that it took you so long. I mean, it's not much longer than Green Rider, is it? No, this book, by sort of the nature of it's written, I think kind of got me to this weird reading pattern. And I think mm-hmm. it... Like, the way I read this book is indicative of, like, my, like, main thoughts when trying to describe this to other people. I read Mm -hmm. this book in, like, very large single sittings with a lot of space between them. So instead of, like, reading the same kind of number of pages a day, I'd sit down, read, like, 100 pages, but then I'd take the next day off. Um, I think this is indicative of the fact that reading this book, I'm like, it has quite simple prose, relatively speaking, not not negative. Mm Mm-hmm necessarily um but had a lot of big ideas and so i found that i would yeah i sit down i consume a huge portion of it and then i need a day to just be like what what is it getting at what's what's just happened <laughs> well i can't wait to hear more about your experience reading it but please tell me more about this bookshelf oh mate i am so excited so i moved house about six months ago and mm. my entire book collection has been sat in boxes for that entire time. Because, Geordie, <sighs> as you know, you want to get your books out of the boxes. What do you need to do? You need to put up your bookshelf. But before you put up your bookshelf, your bookshelf needs to be mounted to the wall, doesn't it, Geordie? Because it's a big bookshelf. It does. So it does. the wall needs to be freshly plastered and painted. But also, if it's ah. stationary on the floor, the flooring needs to be down. But, Geordie, before you put I the see. flooring down, you have to make sure the plumbing's finished. But before the oh. plumbing's finished, obviously you're going to get the plumber around. You need to make decisions, Geordie, like what you're going to do with your kitchen. Ah. So clearly, mm. Geordie, when you want to do mm. your kitchen, but your kitchen backs onto your garden. And you're thinking, do I want ah. to move the door? But if I want to move the door <gasps> to the garden, do I then want to put ah. in French doors or bifold doors? So, Geordie, mm. as you can see, until I... And also, if you're going to do the bifold doors, then you've got to do, do all your windows at the same time. So, Naturally. doing all your windows at the same time window salesmen very interesting group of people double mm. triple glazing what do you want uh, and until you mm. decide whether or not you want double or triple glazing you can't unpack your mm. books it's just mm. the way of it it seems like the books in this case are more of a metaphor than actual than an actual bookshelf you know it feels like it's sort of the the boundary of a new paradigm shift a shifting from of eras between old and new well, is that going to tie back into American Gods? Mm, maybe. Maybe. I know, but it's finally up and it's nice to finally have... Oh, it was one of those moments where I was unpacking books and going, Oh my God, I forgot, I want to read this. Um, and also one moment of, Oh my God, I've bought the same book twice. It happens. You ever done that? It happens. Yes, I got... I, uh, I own two copies of Clash of Kings uh, because I convinced myself somehow at an airport, like, wait, I don't have this book. But I absolutely did. Um, I think it was just because the front covers were different. I have... Um, so let me see, what have I done that with? So obviously The Hobbit is a book I intentionally have bought multiple times. You know, different mm-hmm. editions, very nice. But I have two copies of David Gimmel's Legend. And I have two copies of an omnibus edition of Michael Moorcock's 
the first Corrin trilogy. And mm. I think this is because both omnibuses have different names. One omnibus is called Corrin, the Scarlet Prince, and the other omnibus is called the Swords of Corrin. Um, but they're exactly the same content, like identical. Even the foreword is identical. Uh, <laughs> so I got suckered there. Duncan. Geordie. Big news in the world of fantasy. Bigger than my bookshelf going up. Yes. Bigger than your bookshelf going up. This is fresh off the of pages. The press. Whatever. Right this morning, I've discovered the rumours are true. They are making more Bleach, baby! Manga? The, the anime. They are adapting the last arc. The Thousand Year Blood War arc. Apparently they're now calling it the Blood Warfare arc now. But yeah, it's great. It's the Quincy part of the manga where after after it had ended for the second time, they decided, hey, let's do a third ending. And they kept going. And it's, I'm really excited for this. I love Bleach so much. This is going to be so good. I'm I'm hesitant. Um, Bleach was my thing. It was my anime of choice. Yeah. I watched all love the Bleach. filler arcs when it first came <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, that takes dedication, man. Even I didn't watch all the filler arcs. Um, but it does have that ending problem. I don't understand um, why it didn't end at the end of the... Well, at the end of the plot. At the end of the big overarching plot they've been running since, like, episode yep. one. They beat the big villain, and it just has yep. another arc. And you're just like... Yep. Well, and another, another one. Like, the the main yep. hero, if you don't know, in Bleach, he gets... Oh, how do I condense Bleach really quickly? He gets these magical, like, Grim Reaper powers. And, at the, and yes. there's a big villain who's trying to take over the god and rule the afterlife. And they beat him, yep. and at the end of it, he sacrifices his Green Reaper powers, and he's like, I'm going back to a normal life. Fantastic. End. Close scene. And then there's this whole, like, mm -hmm. epilogue about him going on another adventure to regain his powers. But then mm -hmm. it just ends again anyway. Like, yep. so he doesn't go on an adventure with his powers. And then there's another yeah. arc. There's one thing to be said, is that every ending of Bleach gets worse. <laughs> the first ending is very good, and the next ending is like, it's sweet, but that was a bad arc. And the final ending is actually really bad. Genuinely a little bit insulting to the audience. My other big thing with Bleach, like, again, love it. But I love it has this issue with, like, a lot of the <laughs> villains. Basically, yep. every basically you've got the big villain, but you can't beat the big villain yet. So here's his henchman. Yep. And they do so much effort to be like, no, 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 this henchman, he's the big bad. He's the big emotional state. He's so bad. He's so powerful. And then he'll beat him, and then he'll literally not get mentioned again because there's another henchman that needs beating that's right i fucking love bleach man <laughs> i loved it i always like don't a future bonus episode when bleach the anime the new bleach anime comes out we're gonna do a bonus episode in which i'm gonna tell you about my bleach fan fiction about how i would have written bleach okay i can't wait to hear that you know what? Let's do it. Let's we'll both bring our bleach fan fiction oh, to well, the table. Both. That'll be a great bonus episode. You want me to go away and write bleach fan fiction? Yes. Okay. You don't have to read it out loud. I just need you to tell me how you would have structured bleach. Oh, easily. I would have taken bleach, ground my editing scissors, yep. and um, mm -hmm. turned it into about a fifth the length. And uh, that's a good. That's a great start, man. That's a great start. <laughs> All right then. If you chop, if you chop everything out of Bleach and make it a fifth of the length, you get Kimetsu no Yaiba Demon Slayer, um, which is just straight up better. I've been reading it recently. It's very right. Good. American Gods, Geordie. Let's get on with American Gods. American Gods. 
No, the summer I bought that second copy of A Clash of Kings was the summer uh, after my first year of university. And it was the summer where I was like, I'm going to get really into fantasy. I brought three massive tomes on holiday with me and decided I was going to read all three. It was my first ginormous reading project. I brought with me the Complete Chronicles of Conan under your recommendation, Duncan. Thank you. I brought The Eye of the World, the first book in the Wheel of Time saga, and I brought American Gods, which I hadn't read yet. And that summer, I only read Conan. (laughs) I only read Conan, because the rest of the time I would write Conan, and then I'd get inspired, and then I would get out my notebook, and I would write. I would keep writing. And then... Uh, and there was not a successful summer for writing because it was between writing projects. And so all of the stuff I was writing never came to fruition. It was just like a bunch of dabbling with some ideas. But uh, <laughs> I didn't read American Gods that summer. I had to wait till the next year came along before I finally uh, muscled up enough to read it. Okay, so clarify. So this is a reread for you, a first time for yes. me. You... Yeah, this is probably my fifth time reading this book. Oh, wow. So, Geordie, would you yeah. say, are you a fan of Neil Gaiman in general? Probably, but I actually haven't read that much of his stuff. I was actually saying just yesterday, my sister had some friends around. One of them turned out to be a huge fan of fantasy. I recommended a podcast to her, as all good podcasters should. Um, and she was talking about how... You know, she was currently reading A Wheel of Time. It was her favorite series. She was reading them one after another. And I was like, Duncan said he has to take a year off between these books. But she fucking loves them. Um, So I mentioned to her that we were currently reading um, American Gods. And she asked me if I was a fan of New Gaiman. And I had to tell her that actually most of my experience with New Gaiman is in his multimedia projects. So I've not read The Ocean of the End of the Lane, but I have seen it as a play of a national theatre. And I haven't read Neverwhere, but I have listened to the BBC radio adaptation of it. Interesting diversity there. So mm. I sat in a, I wouldn't say similar boat. So when it comes to Neil Gaiman, let me think. I've only read three books, obviously. Mm-hmm. American Gods, as of today. Um... The one he wrote with Tay Pratchett, Good Omens. And I've only other new gaming book I've read is Stardust, which I love. Um, I've loved Stardust. That's it. And I've not even... Movie's better, though. Yeah, there are elements I really did enjoy in the film. Some things that I think if someone pitched to me beforehand, I would have gone, that's madness. But mm-hmm. we'll, do it. we'll cover it one day. Gosh, the, what they did to Captain Shakespeare. Very interesting decision. I love it. Um, I also, yeah, also, Sandman. Interesting one. I have two volumes of Sandman sat on my shelf right now. Um, I've never read them. Should really get around <gasps> well, to I've it. only read the first first collected volume. I, I didn't get any further with the series. Um, I didn't realise there was more of a series. I was like, yeah, that was really good. Everyone was right. And then it was like, Tony, there's so much more to do. There's so much more to get through. Uh, so one day I'll read that. Well, I wonder if all the Neil Gaiman fans are out there just like, why? Why so little? Because you agree, you like everything you've seen of him. That's true. I like everything I've seen. It just sort of, it just sort of hasn't happened. To be fair, my intro to um, to Neil Gaiman was the Graveyard Book, and I just didn't like it when I was a kid. Like I don't really remember why, what my experience was of it, but I just remember not enjoying it and not finishing it. 
I have a hypothesis. I didn't even realize it was a joke about the Jungle Book until years later. I have a bit of a hypothesis about this. And I do think with Neil Gaiman, he's an author, but lots of people can easily recommend Neil Gaiman as an author. But if you ask them, okay, what book? You'll get a very diverse set of answers. And that mm-hmm. doesn't help someone new coming into it being like, so where do I start? Yeah, that's true. There's something very strange about Neil Gaiman in that I find it quite hard. And maybe this is just because I haven't read enough of his stuff. I find it quite hard to pin down his writing style. Because I feel like you've summarized it already as best you can with simple prose, big ideas. I think that's the funnest way. He has a... He does have a sort of a mix of... um, I don't want to say comedy or comedicness. All the books I've read by him have do have a sense of humor but it's not yeah they have a dry wit they're they're very dry they're sometimes very dark um Mm -hmm. even compared to some especially compared to something like terry pratchett uh Mm -hmm. which i'd say oh no those are funny books Mm -hmm. i wouldn't necessarily say the books i've read by neil gaiman were funny books but the dry wit is definitely a component to the narrative that's sort of undeniably significant but i wouldn't call them comedies absolutely not let's um yeah, let's let's have a let's have a chat about American Gods. Before we go any further, Duncan, what version of a book did you read? Very good question, Geordie, because I so firstly, I just went on Kindle and bought the first version that came up when I typed it in. And that was sure. the expanded text as I learned. There we go, yeah. Mm. So you learned that in the foreword? Basically, yeah. I was like, Okay, well I've bought you now, yeah. so this is the version I'm reading. This this book has so so many um like breaks away from it it's actually uh, it's actually ridiculous hang on let me let me let me bring it up i remember once when i was um i believe in sixth form so that's ages 17 to 18 uh for our mm. international listeners um and i had a big issue about this because i had to study frankenstein and the first thing they told us to do is go away and read the book and i mm. read the wrong edition and Geordie, mm. it stuffed me up for the entire term studying that book because the changes they made were so subtle but often significant that I'd be there like, what? No, but, ah, oh. Like when you're trying to make arguments about like the characterization of Victor and it's like mm-hmm. certain scenes, just tiny words. There's a little phrase where he refers to someone and in one edition he calls him his playmate and one edition he calls him his plaything. Like whoa i know big difference big difference but obviously when you're like chugging through the the text to like come up with examples that's bizarre actually it's not like mary shelley was writing another language what business do they have changing it um well basically from what i understand oh god sorry i'm not a frankenstein scholar i believe the the original text it was completely kind of her own edition but then she did Mm. a rewrite with her husband sort of on Mm. the uh, behest of her publisher to make it more sellable I, I believe that is the, the story behind it. Which uh, one were you reading? I was reading the original, but we were studying the rewrite. The more widely distributed texts. So in that way, we are doing Pulling a Duncan, because this version of American Gods, and this is the one which I have also read, the 10th anniversary edition, is the one which, um, which I uh, was first introduced to. I don't know which version I brought on holiday with me, which my cousin Oliver bought me. Um, because I don't recall what the author's note said at the front. However, this 10th anniversary edition was written 10 years after 
the book was originally published, and it's uh, it's sort of like uh, it was received the George Lucas treatment, or I guess more likely the um, the I was about to say Percy Jackson, the Peter Jackson uh, treatment, where there's a bunch of scenes that have previously been removed have been added back in. There's whole chapters which previously had sort of been edited out. A lot of coming to America stories. And it staggered in a lot of ways. It has, my copy of the book has uh, the opening credits, which is basically the author's note. It says American Gods, and then an introduction by Neil Gaiman about how this copy of the book came to be. Then it's followed up by uh, a note on the text about some of the ways, the specific changes that have been made. And then it has a caveat and warning for travelers about how you shouldn't use this book as a travel guide because a lot of the places don't actually exist or have been moved around. And finally, an epigraph. Oh, and a 20-minute postscript at the end of the book after the epilogue. Yes, I love that. That postscript, honestly, I found such a satisfying end. I'm actually like, the book had just ended at the end of the story. I don't think I would have enjoyed mm-hmm. it as much as reading the um, that post bit. Really enjoyed it. It's so good. It's really good. Um, I So, of course, you said you bought it on Kindle. I, of course, got this book on audiobook. And I really can't recommend this, this audiobook strongly enough. It is unabridged. It is an expanded edition. And it is also a full cast recording all at once. They have hired... Um, tons of actors to play different roles and they deliver their lines of dialogue. In that way, it's a lot like the Dune audiobook, but they really committed to the bit. Like in the Dune audiobook, they, um, they have sometimes just chopped out the bits where it says things like, he said or said the Baron, and they just had actors deliver the lines of dialogue back and forth like a conversation. You can get away with that in Dune because um, Frank Herbert doesn't give a shit about he said this, he said that. He cl- he just, like, he will just drop in semicolons and just have the dialogue play out. In this, that does matter. So those, those, uh, the author's voice still remains. However, each character gets an actor to actually play them. And they all do fantastic jobs. I honestly feel like I'm missing out for a bit here. I do like to always stick if to the Next test. time you're on a, on a big journey, Duncan, I strongly recommend giving this book a re-listen. And it is the most re-readable book I've ever read. You might talk about how it is very long. It feels, it's like a breeze when you reread it because everything falls into place. Let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the actual book. Okay. Put very simply, my dear listeners, this book is a book about America. I think, first and foremost. Oh, yeah. Secondly, it's a book about gods. It's a book about the old gods that, have been, that were brought to America when the first settlers or immigrants came over and they brought their beliefs with them. Their ideas of Odin, of pixies, of kobolds, of leprechauns. And it's about how America doesn't believe in them anymore as a collective. But that's not enough for these gods to die. They go on and on and live among us. And now new gods are rising. Not the Christian god, who is interestingly absent in the text.
That's right. Yeah, and the interesting thing about it, something that he's gone into before, is that when he first wrote American Gods, he was sort of a new arrival to America, a lot like all of these immigrant gods in this story. He was still getting the lay of the land. He'd written about America before, specifically in his Sandman comic books. It had taken place in America. And he thought very confidently that he could simply write about America. However, um, he sort of realized that upon arriving in America, the America which he'd written about in Sandman didn't exist. It was the America of Hollywood. It was the America of TV shows. It was the way Americans depict themselves, not how they truly are. So in writing this book, it's deeply personal in that one way, in that it's about Neil Gaiman trying to discover the American spirit and then writing about it. I think that's a very interesting kind of outlook about from Neil Gaiman, because when you... Sorry, I might be saying something quite controversial here. Um, but when you look at it, you know, you say Neil Gaiman, he's British, he's come over. The majority of people in America at the moment, their ancestors came over at some point. The That's German right. image, when we say American, to the point at which we have mm -hmm. to identify Native American as a separate category, were people mm -hmm. who travelled there and came mm -hmm. with an outlook of what it was and then combined to you know what it is. It's a very interesting sort of culture to see develop because it's relatively new and you can really go back to the start, put a pin in it and go, okay, we will trace it from here. Mm. I find it very interesting that Neil Gaiman, though, doesn't put anyone quite in his position in the story. You know, Shadow isn't a sort of a recent immigrant. In fact, all the gods that we go who who are like immigrants who travelled over, there's mm. no one in from the, the 20th century, as far as I can remember from the text. I would slightly disagree with you there. Not in the actual factual statements about what you've said. No, all the gods have been there a long time. They've all been there essentially for centuries because they've come over with early immigrants. Um, however, I think that Shadow is in some ways um, a replacement for Neil Gaiman in this because he's constantly traveling. Um, and the fact is that Shadow was basically brought up overseas. So in some ways, Shadow is... Um, is separated from his American half, like his American culture. Um, and in some ways, like, he's the child of an immigrant, you know, considering his parentage. But, you know, he when he travels around, he has to ask, essentially, what are stupid questions. Like, he doesn't know how to pronounce Cairo, and he has to ask a local about that. And he, he gets lost, and he has to ask for directions. Uh, he doesn't know about, um, you know... Uh, the, the cultural habits of certain states. Just beca because he's an outsider and from certain states, and as Mr. Wednesday says, in America, different states might as well be different countries sometimes, he's always a bit of an outsider. So, Woody, we've talked about... You've, you asked, started this segment by asking me, Duncan, you know, was it about? Can mm. I throw something back at you? Geordie, sure. what genre is this? That's the plot. What's the theme? What's the genre? It's fantasy. But it's is fantasy, it just man. fantasy? 
because um, I've had a hard time. I would, I, I would say, this. yeah, I would say if you ask me what genre is it, I would say it's fundamentally an urban fantasy story. Um, it is more specifically, it's mythic fantasy. It's a road trip story, um, with mystery and horror elements. That's good. That's a good way yeah. to put it. When I look to folklore horror as a genre, I think of stuff like Pan's Labyrinth. I think of stuff like um, American Werewolf in London. And I think of American Gods. This is a sort of story where it's sort of like grappling with witches and the spirits of the woods. Except the spirits of the woods and the witches are kind of serving your lemonade and, um, and you're driving to meet them. I think that's where I got a bit hung up reading this because I was really struggling. I even had a phone call with my mother. Um, mm-hmm. where I said, oh, I'm reading American Gods. I said, oh, I've always meant to read that. Like, what is it? And I'm, I was there like, I couldn't grasp it because I was struggling to say, well, it's urban fantasy. It's got the mysticism. I, I didn't really want to say road trip because it didn't have a lot of the elements that I often associate with road trips. Um, namely, a lot of road trip stories that I sort of read always have that sort of more consistent cast you know there's there's a buddy buddy road trip quite buddy road trip comedy quite sure. a famous kind of trope but shadow he he pairs up but it's quite a rotation not only that mm. but there's quite a lot of relatively long stops uh lakeside and um mm-hmm. Kairu or cairo or whatever you want to call it Neil Gaiman would sort of classify American Gods as a series of conversations. Yeah. It's all about Shadow going somewhere, chatting to someone, and then moving on. That's how the book is structured. Okay, and the final part I do need to just rough them in. So, because you throw horror in there. I didn't get horror. Like, people describe this to me, oh, it has a bit of horror. And I honestly went this entire book looking for it. Yeah. It's not scary. But it's definitely horror. I I'm just, I mean, maybe I'm just a brave little boy, but I, I mean, this book isn't scary. There's horrifying stuff happening in it. Human sacrifice galore. Murder and, and cover-ups and dark magics and government agencies that can make people disappear. But it's not scary. And there's a very specific reason for that. Go to detail. One of the core strengths of this book and the sort of secret weapon it has in its back pocket is the main character is shadow shadow is this fantastic narrator because or perspective character because you don't really realize that something is deeply wrong until you're pretty deep in the text you know duncan what was your feeling about shadow as the book went on how did you what was the first impression you built of him? And how did it develop as you read the book? Oh, so we meet Shadow in this book, uh, just being let out of prison. Mm. And shockingly enough, that didn't necessarily put any points against him for me. Because I've consumed mm-hmm. quite a bit of media that invites you to always sympathise with the person in the American prison system. Mm-hmm. So... Feel like when I first up, he seemed to be trying to embody a bit of the everyman, the down on his luck everyman. You know, mm-hmm. one bad thing just happened after another. Get out of jail, oh, but relative passed away. Got a job lined up, falls through. And then it's him sort of like exploring the world. For me, Shadow 
I think the thing that got me with Shadow is that over the course of the text, he slowly gained greater agency and took mm-hmm. greater action. And I think that's where his more of appeal came. That's where I did like him. What do you think about him as a character and the way that he saw things, his perspective? Because he's a bit of a, initially, a bit of a contradiction. You know, you're told he's a big, tough guy. He's in, he starts in prison because of a violent crime, but he doesn't act like a big, tough guy. He doesn't act like a guy who's just done a hard time in prison. He comes off as sort of slightly intellectual. He comes off as curious and into reading books. He comes off a little bit too passive for me in the start of this text. Uh-huh. And I think yeah. he doesn't have particularly charming or witty dialogue early on. No. And I think that's early true. on, he he's not... I think that's it. He There's certainly a lack of charisma in the early stages. Uh, mm. Particularly compared to characters like Wednesday and the, the gods he interacts with, who are far more charismatic that and is interesting. A hundred and ten percent true. That Thank is completely you. true. And yet, that's part of what makes him such an amazing protagonist for this particular story. He meets so many weird and wacky characters. And you might think that what I'm saying here, oh, it's good to have a sort of foundation character, a normal guy to bounce all of these weird ideas off. But it goes beyond that. Yeah, Shadow is sort of, he meets all these strange characters, people talk about absolute gibberish in front of him. And it takes him ages to actually say, hey, this is fucking weird, right? What would you think about that, Duncan, as you're reading this book? How long it takes Shadow to acknowledge that stuff he can't explain is actually happening in front of him? For me, I interpreted it as a very broken man. And that's mm-hmm. how I saw it. I saw it as part of his tragedy. Shadow has had so many bad things happen to him at the start of this novel. I honestly just interpreted it, and intentionally, um, if we find out later on, you know, he's been manipulated into this role. And I just see as someone mm-hmm. who's just so utterly on the verge of giving up that he's just like, whatever, I don't care anymore. The things that I cared about or was invested in mm-hmm. just aren't here. So, yes, let there be gods. Let there be magical creatures. Maybe I'm going mad. I just don't care. That's how I read it. Now, the book at a certain point hits you in the back of the head with this explanation, which causes things to fall into place. You know what I'm talking about? Are you talking about the uh, reveal of his heritage? No, I'm not talking about that. Oh, no, which one are you I'm talking about? what his wife says to him in Lakeside. Oh, yes. Yeah, so she, there's a scene this where his wife, who, by the way, for the people, I'm assuming most people, you've either read the book. If not, general recommendation, please go read. We will be getting into a lot of spoilers. His wife, who is dead at this point, is having a chat with him. Yes. And she calls him dead. She dies at the start of the book. Yeah. His wife calls him dead. She says that he's dead. He's dead. He's alive, but he's not really alive. He's meant to be one of and... these falling through life kind of people. Who's mm-hmm. not taking... Again, What is the first thing I said, he doesn't take agency at the start of the novel. Mm-hmm. He's just letting life happen to him. Or to a certain extent, pass yeah. him by. Um, and I think that's what's that's really right. enjoyable is the fact that he's, you know, this man who's let life just kind of pass him by. And as it's going by, it's getting weirder and weirder and weirder and weirder until eventually he has to go, wait, stop, stop. What the hell is happening? Mm. And it's like that breaking point. Now, I can't actually even yeah. remember in this novel, other than the 
uh, the critical, the pivotal sort of rebirth scene. When's that point, mm-hmm. Jordi, where you feel like he first breaks and he goes, right, I'm taking action? Um, it is um, It is exactly that point. The whole point of a rebirth is that Shadow is suddenly in control of his life, having either been a passive figure walking through it or manipulated every step of the way. In this literal rebirth scene, he takes action. He becomes his true self. It, it, this book, in its own way, is sort of this bizarre hero's journey where you see shadow get wiser and smarter and more powerful as the story goes along it's only at that point however where he makes the first choice which actually really matters and that is to die And you and this, this is part of the benefit of the book you gain when you reread it. And I really can't stress enough how much I think this book has improved from being merely extremely good to utterly fantastic on a reread. You see the ways in which you've been subtly told throughout the book that people just sort of treat Shadow weirdly. People see whatever they want to see in Shadow. People don't see Shadow when he doesn't want to be seen. Jordy. Duncan. Jordy. I had to stop you because I didn't actually love American Gods. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I agree. I think we've said I've not been dishonest to you, listeners. I I mean it. There's our book club. You know, I I elements shadow. Well done. The gods. Interesting. But reading this book through, I spent a lot of this text going. Is this going to come back? Is this relevant? What's the side plot? Where's this? The structure of this story just mm-hmm. had me going, what's this scene adding? Why is this here? What are we doing with this? Why is so much time being spent with this character? What am I meant to take from this? I don't understand. And even at the end... I can understand the response to that. Um, how do you think that shakes out in the end? It improves, but I don't think it quite all clicked in a way. To be fair, I read the end of this book, the last quarter of this book in like a single sitting. So it was doing something right, and I was Mm. enjoying the experience of taking in the prose. But I wasn't Mm. emotionally fully engaged. I can't quite put my finger on it, and it's really been wrestling with me. Well, I think that's kind of understandable, Duncan, because this this book isn't a heart stirrer. Um, nor is it especially cerebral, but it's very emotionally detached. You see everything through Shadow's eyes, who is a deeply emotionally detached person. You don't really get big, feeling-stirring moments. Everything's quite cold and impassive. That's simply the way the book is written. Um, if you, I'm very sorry you didn't enjoy all the different meetings with gods. Um, personally... One of the great strengths of this book is how lovely and lackadaisical it is. How there's no sense of drive or rush. It just sort of drifts through. And and if you enjoy spending time with the different weirdo characters they meet along the way, then every scene becomes enjoyable. 
I think something to bear, I would say, is that I think that basically every part of the story does come together in the end. And that's what kind of makes it so fascinating that Neil Gaiman is able to tie it all back in together. Every part of the story. Do you think it... Yeah, Jordy, I think so. What about that scene when he has sex with the Catwoman? Okay, never mind. <laughs> that one. Yeah, that one. That yeah, you you got me there. That one is completely inexplicable. And I made a I I've been waiting for this joke to come up ever since we talked about good omens and inexplicable sex scenes because Neil Gaiman, Jesus man, just settle down. Settle down. How did that come back? Why did I need I mean, it comes back in that vast like shadow, but um, and she helps guide him through the afterlife. But yeah, that didn't need to happen. I felt very uneducated in this book, and I think that also was something that always just ticked me off. And that is completely personal. But there were so many gods mm-hmm. or references to mythology that are just like, I don't know who you are. Like what? Like I don't know the three sisters or Zenobog. Chernobog. Chernobog. No idea who they are in mythology. That's fine. Neither does Shadow. I know, but... I... What, did, were you, what were you missing out on, man? I mean, you didn't know who the Norns were, but they're not a very important part of a story, like, in terms of who they are. That is true, but I always felt I wanted a bit more, like, a reveal. I wanted to know more about how this world worked in terms of their gods, because I couldn't quite okay. fathom. You say that the function of, say, um... The gods like Wednesday. He's a god who's been yeah. brought forward, you know, with them in their mind. Odin. Uh, Wednesday is Odin. But he's the American version of Odin. So, but is how is he Odin? Is he Odin as he came yes. across in their minds, who's just lived here? But Odin had powers. Odin was yes. Beyond like all these gods function in these sort of human forms, but not all gods are envisioned as such. What do you mean? Well, oh, so because he's a hu- he appears as a human being, but there are gods out there who are not human beings, like the Rakshasa, who appear in a sort of demonic form uh, as they assemble for the final battle. Yeah. So I'm like, well, why, you know, if 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 a god just so happened to be, it's this kind of relationship between like belief, as in power, and actual power. You know, mm-hmm. at what point, you know, if your god is meant to be if someone had the, dreamed up their god being some, I don't know, massive, the moon, the moon itself was an embodiment of their god, would well, they appear as... Well, well, obviously, Duncan, we meet a character who is the moon. I know. We meet Zoya Polivichnaya. She's the moon? Yeah, she's the keeper of the moon. Oh, and, know. like, Odin created the universe, uh, but obviously Mr. Wednesday can't create the universe, and that is what is so wonderful about the book, is that they have this... It has this extremely soft sense of magic, where the magic is very nebulous and strange, and the capabilities of the gods are ephemeral and and weird. Like at the end of the day, like Mister like Mister Wednesday couldn't join the X Men, like he wouldn't be strong enough for that. Like he'd be like, I have some weird charm powers, and they'd be like, Okay, well, listen, get in, we'll put you on like the E list. We'll call you up later. We really need you, but. Like, there's not a lot we can we can do of you, Mr. Wednesday. Also, change up the name. Like, it doesn't really fall in line with our practices. You sound a bit too much like our enemy, Mr. Sinister. Uh, we'll call you later. But no, Duncan, like, who's one of our favorite gods we meet is Anansi. Anansi is a spider. 
but he appears as a man because he's a god. He can he appears as a person. We meet later when they assemble for final battle. A guy, um, Mr. Nancy appears as a spider, like the size of a I don't remember what it was, like a quad bike or it's something. Like a rock though, isn't it? Yeah, something like that. But yeah, some of the gods they meet are literal monsters. Like there's Terry the Troll, who is mentioned off screen, being uh, being shot by a postal worker. And uh, the final battle, vampires are there, looking freaking weird and stuff. Yeah, those are the people who have to hide. The, st- the weirdos who have to, like, lurk under bridges and stuff. Oh, it's like, it's strange. This is why I said I took long breaks between reading it. Because I was mm-hmm. just like, I can't. I hear you. I hear you. But there's a level of, like, functionality mm-hmm. that I'm just trying to, like, click together. Because then, does this mean that in this world, like, so Wednesday is the Odin of America. That's right. Does that mean... And he's... Yep. Cause, but, but each state is basically its own country. So do we mean America as in... So is there a Canadian Odin? Yeah, there's a Canadian Odin. So that's based on humans' idea of borders creates identities which creates subsets of gods oh yeah 100 percent. at a certain point you know when before texas was a part of america um i bet you good money that mr wednesday couldn't go there because that wasn't the land you know it's the borders which americans create in their minds um which are nebulous to us would probably be ironclad to gods gods are creatures of ideas of beliefs and and those um and those ideas and those beliefs matter a lot more to the gods than they do to human beings okay i can roll with you there so if enough americans Mm -hmm. also canadian odin would be a lot stronger than um that american odin i bet because newfoundland is in canada and they probably have a lot more connection to you know, the Norse gods and all that than the rest of Canada. All right. So then, say we have, like, mythical figures. Does it, with that, by that logic, it applies to sort of any, like, mythical figure. So if enough people believe that, like, King Arthur existed, that there's a King Arthur... King Arthur is rocking around England right now, Duncan. I know he is. In the world of American gods, King Arthur is at the pub. Okay, I can think this line up. Now, that then brings me to my final bit of the the click to how this functions what's very interesting then is the absence of one particular god whose son gets an off reference mm-hmm. but you talk about gods of america having belief and mm-hmm. neil gaming makes the decision to make the new gods the gods of the internet or the gods of media doesn't cover one particular christian god probably has a lot of influence in the states are you talking about the big g or talking about the big j um i'll be honest either functions in this argument because one of them does show up like and neil gaiman says like uh in the postscript hey um i wasn't sure whether to include this or not and eventually i kind of decided to maybe include it but he did write a scene where shadow meets jesus but that's not in the text i read okay see that's interesting that's not in the text you read because uh, neil gaiman said like i wasn't sure whether to include it like I'm not sure whether this is canon to American gods. There's the, the only reference to Jesus in the text I read was like some, something along the lines of in the Middle East, he um, can't even... So in, in my book version, Shadow meets Jesus. Um, he meets Jesus whilst he's hanging on the tree. 
Uh, it's one of the visits he has before he dies. And he meets Jesus. And Jesus has, like, he meets him. And he's in this, like, really nice, big house. He says, like, um, <laughs> Jesus gives him a glass of water and then turns into wine. And <laughs> Shadow says, it's just okay. And <laughs> Jesus says, yeah, actually, making wine is really hard. Vintages are really difficult to make. You have to worry about, like, the side of the mountain the grapes are grown on, the soil it grows in. It's, I can make wine, but it's hard to make good wine. And then Jesus talks about how he he gets a lot of belief, but it's the wrong sort of belief. And he gets belief from the wrong sort of people. And people use his name for the wrong reasons. And for that, so he's essentially super duper powerful in the world of American gods. He can do great things, but he can't do it for any good reason. It's all a bit wrong. He's been misappropriated. And he's kind of mad about that. Oh, Geordie, I'm a not very smart person. Okay. Because that is in the text I read. I just didn't work out that was Jesus. Oh, dude! <laughs> Seriously, I was like, is he meant to be that Greek guy who does the wine? What is he on about? <laughs> See that popular in the States? <laughs> oh, man. You see how I struggle, Geordie? This book, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say... Maybe that's why a reread is what I need. And I can see why it would be more enjoyable in a reread. Because you can see the bits that when you're first going through, you're like, well, that seems a bit extraneous. Mm -hmm. I don't see how that links in. Yeah. Would then click together on a reread. Yeah, everything about Lakeside is so, like, I can see someone going, man, what's the point of this? Like, What is the point? Oh, Dordie, the Lakeside. People, there's a long section in this book where Shadow goes to Lakeside where he has to hide out. And he does things. It's a small town in America. Like, gets a pasty. And we find out so much about this pasty. I, I don't understand. Uh, or how he, he keeps the cold out by, like, putting tape around his windows. Or getting heaters installed. And I'm just there like, thank you, Neil Gaiman. Could we get back to the gods, please? Um, I think I am. Because then, at the end of the story, after the climax with the gods, we go back to Lakeside. And we resolve mm -hmm. a bit of a murder mystery. I'm like, that's... Yeah, what you almost do not realise is there. It's so well hidden that you just forget about it. Because you're thinking about the big picture. You're thinking about the gods. You're thinking about... Um, you're thinking about how Shadow's going to deal with Mr. Wednesday. Whether Mr. Wednesday's going to come back. What the future of America looks like. That everyone forgets these little people who are suffering all the time. And then Shadow doesn't forget. He remembers and he goes back and he saves a town. So that's the message. Because I do like that. The idea that there's an importance to just looking after little places. You know, you don't have to be the big hero saving the army. But I did find its placement interesting because it's, it, the scope gets so small. And so many of the big character moments have already wrapped up. I'm like, I feel like this should be a separate story. I feel like I want to read the murder mystery of Lakeside. But I don't feel like it's been integrated into my American gods at quite the right pacing. It, that it either is too much or is too little. What do you think about um, Hinzelman as a character? I thought as a character he was very, very interesting. I like the fact that he's mm -hmm. the unassuming, he's the helpful person straight at the gate. He's one of the few people mm -hmm. that seem, I say few actually, quite a lot of people in Lakeside are friendly to Shadow. 
And that's a real interesting yep. point because he's had not a lot of friends that don't also want that's to right. bash his head in so far. It's a safe, it's a safe haven. haven. And that's nicely done. What I think about him, though, is it's almost... He's despicable. Well, he's doing mm-hmm. this very evil. What's he doing, Duncan? He's murdering children annually. Um, yes. Every year in the winter, someone goes missing. A child goes missing. The people of Lakeside justify it. They say, oh, his, da- his dad kidnapped this one kid. Or, oh, this one kid ran off to another city. Or, oh, well, this kid got lost in the woods. These things happen. And Shadow realises by accident, that this has been happening for centuries. Every year, a kid goes missing because Hinzelman is killing them. Hinzelman, it turns out, is not a nice old man, as everyone assumed. He's a kobold. He is older than the mythological figure, the little tricksy goblin creature whom we associate kobolds to be. And as a D&D player, Duncan, I'm sure this is very shocking to you, that he's not just this um this monster he is a god an ancient ancient god um whose substance has changed over the years as he's been reimagined and he is this dark dark creature from like the time of the romans is he not older than that i thought he was even older yeah he says um he is a wonderful voice actor in the play i listened to because i like they were sacrificing children to me before the Romans came to the Black Forest. Oh, it, it, he said a cool show. This, in many respects, I found him one of the more horrifying aspects. Because although mm. he is this ancient god, his outward pe- appearance is the most human. That's right. I think that's what, this is the closest to that horror element came. But the reveal mm-hmm. almost came, like the reveal that it even was a mystery to be solved. Sort of came a bit late for it to really have that impact. But I did like the feeling that I had been fully taken in as a reader. You know, that I'd fully gone, yep, I trust this guy. He is, you know, this is the this is the nice grandpa figure. I will be honest, I was looking at Lakeside and going, well, let's be honest here. Someone in Lakeside is probably committing murders. And who, what characters have we met? There's only about four really on the list. I did think it was either between him or the cop. So, or that it was some part play of the gods taking these children for, maybe it was part of Wednesday or something like that, when the other characters mm. we've met. Let's talk a little bit more about Wednesday, because he's kind of fallen by the wayside. We can be excused for not talking too much about Shadow, although I do like talking about him, because we've already established he's this simple, straightforward character. Let's talk about Wednesday. Let's talk about Wednesday, Jordi. Let's ask ourselves the question, why is he went called Wednesday? name it's because he's it's his day odin's day woden's day wednesday is it people i'm not clever enough for american gods oh man i here's the thing and maybe i'm just well suited to like this book because i love mythology so much i'm so fascinated by mythology one of the only neil gaiman books i've read is neil gaiman's norse mythology it's so good you read it duncan no i have not read it oh man it's so good it's so good anyway Okay, yeah. well, that's a very short, punchy answer to that question. Dun- Duncan, would you like to learn about where our weekday names come from? I would from? love to know where our weekday names come from. Obviously, I know that okay. Sundays, because God created the sun on that day. Uh, I don't know where Monday comes from. I'll start with that one. Not sure. Tuesday. You know where that comes from, Duncan? Uh, it's just Norse too. 
They're all... Yes, from from Tuesday to Friday, they're all Norse gods. All right. I can't think of which one, so you go for it. Okay, so that'll be Tyr, the god of war and justice. Mm-hmm. Tyr's day, Tuesday. And then there's Wednesday. Odin in High Germanic is Woden, which becomes Wednesday. You can thank the Anglo-Saxons for that one. And then, of course, you know Thursday. Thursday? Thursday, that's right, yes. well done. Uh, and then of last is Friday. Someone like Frida, something like that? Close, close, yeah, Freya. Freya. I play God of War, people. I'm not uncultured. Yeah, sorry, I'm thinking of Freya versus Frigg. Frigg gives her name to Friday. Frigg, Frigg Friday. Yep. Okay. And then Saturday and Sunday, I don't know. I think Sunday, you might almost be right, but I feel like we might be having that exact same conversation with, which Mr. Wednesday has with Easter. It's like, they don't know where your name comes from. They don't know who you are. Anyway, let's talk about Wednesday. Let's talk about Wednesday. Let's talk about Wednesday and Wednesday's plan. Wednesday's plan. What is Wednesday's plan, Dordie? Uh, Wednesday's plan is to stir up a war between the old gods and the new. And because Odin is a god of war and death, he will gain power from that war. He will dedicate the battle between them to himself. And in doing so, he will become the most powerful god. And he will gain the worship and the power of all of America for himself. Now, this is quite interesting because I never quite jived with how this works. In relation to the kind of the rules of belief established sure. in the book. Because he'll dedicate the sacrifice to him. But he won't gain anyone's belief. No one's going to suddenly go. Oh yes. I will sacrifice him. You know, it's a very really short term plan. You can only sacrifice all the gods once. Well I think the understanding of the book is that. When he is the only god. Or the most powerful god. People will believe in him. That, it, that, will, that will follow. But yeah, he'll basically supercharge himself because here's the deal. The way Odin received his power, the way he received his belief isn't just from people believing. Believing is nothing. There has to be a sacrifice. Even media, the god of TV and movie sets, says that her power comes from sacrifices. Shadow says, what sort? What do they sacrifice to you? And she says, their time, mostly. So the offering of people's time spent watching TV gives media her power. The sacrifice of human life gives Odin his power. The sacrifice of a man represents the sacrifice of all mankind. So sacrificing all the gods is immeasurably more powerful than the sacrifice of human life. Okay, I see it now. I see how it clicks together. Mm -hmm. Do you think that Wednesday planned out Shadow's involvement from conception or do you reckon this was something that sort of fell into place later? I think Odin was sort of sowing wild oats on purpose to eventually create a son to do this. Shadow himself is not unique in that way. He's just the, the product of a very rare conception. And what part of Shadow then do, do you take away from this text was necessary to let the plan work. Like, why does Shadow, and this might be Jenny, just once again, not getting the book. Why does Shadow have to be Odin's son? That explained when Shadow and Odin actually have their confrontation at the end of the book, where 
a shadow being Odin's son says there's few more sacrifices more powerful than a son being sacrificed for his father. Okay, that's a nice tie into Christianity there. I guess I guess so. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, Christian infection into the world of Norse myths. And do you think that Wednesday, when he made his grand plan, do you think he was quite ignorant of the land when he's putting it together? That's something that I was very curious. By the gods of the land, the the, sort of the ancient gods, the bullheads, those that were talking to Shadow throughout this book. Throughout this book, Shadow is visited by this oh yeah, uh, bullheaded figure. Mm-hmm. And near the end, we sort of discover that these are the gods, the native gods of America. The, the gods of the, the land. And... That's, that's not quite true, Duncan. These are the gods yeah. who have been forgotten. He's gone shadow ghost of a graveyard of the gods. These are gods who no one remembers. A lot of them are native gods who have been forgotten. And we meet one of them in the flashbacks, the mammoth-headed god. Hmm. Um, but yeah, these are these are also like um, very Hindu gods down there as well. And gods from all over the world. Okay. That again, as another text, Jordy. I I feel bad now because I feel like like I wasn't loving this book, and I am mm-hmm. feeling like I I feel like I need to give it a reread, given the it's, context. I mean, you know what? It's it's if it's just a book which doesn't fly with you, Duncan. That's fine, of course. Well, like it, if you it's... don't remember these things because it didn't hold your attention, that's because the book didn't hold your attention. You're right, actually, and I shouldn't apologize for it. The book should make me understand. And be interested, but I was interested. I was interested in Shadow's journey and his personal mm-hmm. story. I just think the larger plot of the gods and the moving pieces. Obviously, for most of this book, it's intentionally kept in the dark. You don't mm-hmm. know the grand con. You don't know what Wednesday's lining up. I just felt when it all got revealed, I didn't get enough of an explanation for it to all click into place for me. Or for the very least, in the time since finishing that book about twenty-four hours ago. Mm-hmm. I couldn't puzzle it out sufficiently uh, to do a whole podcast on it. I'm still standing here going, I don't I don't get what happened. Maybe in a week's time, I would have turned around and gone, oh, I get it now. But today I'm just like, it's so confusing, Geordie. I guess if there's something you need to know about going into this book is that you got to be ready for it to be a nice, slow, methodical journey that you want to take your time with the book. Um, you want to know that it's... It's a good if you're interested in mythology and and cultural histories and stuff like that. Um, especially if you're interested in the way which gods shift and change over time. Like, I'm really fascinated by um, pan-Euro-Indian prime myths, you know? The understanding that all gods that we conceive of, Duncan, are reinterpretations of the same ancient, ancient, ancient deities. The reason why we have storm gods in different cultures is that they're all the same storm god, adapted over time. That there's etymological connections in between, um, in between the names of gods and the words for things. So deep down in that graveyard of the gods, Duncan, are these primordial entities who represent all gods, who've been split up and diverged and changed over time. So maybe this is just so specific to me or people who have my particular interests uh, that this just is precision engineered to satisfy me. I'm going to reject that a little bit just because the success of this book 
I think shows that it does have quite a wide reach. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's a com- another aspect which you've got to have a real interest in. And that is in America and American identity mm-hmm. and its culture and its spirit. Which, again, is another question which I think is very interesting. But I did not care about going into this book. I don't think Neil Gaiman did quite enough to make me care by the end of this book. Sorry you don't care about America, Duncan. No, stop it. That makes me sound so terrible. What I mean is it's looking for identity, but it's not talking about the people because it's only relating back to the gods. I'm like, well, I don't see how this affects the actual culture of America. You know, these are all personifications of like dead ideas. But I couldn't quite work out. Well, if he kills media, will that mean in the hearts of all American, their like interest in media will just sort of die? If he kills the personification of media as a god. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite work out how that linked back to actual people. Well, Duncan, we do meet actual people, though. It's not just gods in this book, right? We do meet actual people. Uh, that's why Lakeside, I think, is very good. We get a lot more kind of humanity in that. But what mm-hmm. I didn't see is how... The external personifications, the gods, mm-hmm. relate. I could see the one way. I could see how belief and sacrifice feeds the gods, but I couldn't quite understand how these physical bodies that the gods exhibit feed back into humanity. If I physically kill Odin, can people still believe in Odin? What do you think? Yes, but that doesn't quite work with the stakes of the plot. Okay, I so... kill media. You can so still Dun- sacrifice. So Duncan, yeah. gods die in the course of this book, right? Or they're referred yes. to have died. So Thor, for example, is dead. Do people still know about Thor? Yeah, people still know about Thor. Okay, so they know about him. He isn't gone. He isn't wiped out of history. They just don't have belief? He doesn't gain any power from belief. You know, they say the railway gods have declined in power. Because people don't use the railways, don't revere the railways anymore, they've been replaced by the gods of highways. But the, they're still there. So, would that mean then you could summon new gods back out of the past? If they Do were you... revived, yeah, they would probably come back. That's exactly Wednesday's plan, is to, to rev- come back and become a figure of worship again. Okay. What the thing is, Duncan, this is all. It's a what. It's the softest of soft magic settings. The magic is all dark and mysterious and strange, and not really meant to be completely understood because Shadow doesn't really get to understand it. It's subtle and it's it's weird and uncontrollable. So you're saying I should take that hard magic cap off and just sort of relax into this soft magic world? You can you can approach it as much as you like, but don't try and do like um. People, so, 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 listen, this, this is a good topic, to, time to talk about it, Dan. There's an instinct which a lot of fans have, especially fans of things like science fiction, to apply logic to a lot of, to anything they see. And that's basically fine, and it's often in good fun. But it's one thing to try and figure out how powerful Gandalf is, and how much he can destroy with a crack of his staff, and sometimes just missing the point of a story entirely. There's a, um, I, you can think of it as, like, the game theory approach to, to media, over logic, applying too much logic to something. Like, there's a, there's a game theory, which I've not 
I can't be bothered to fucking watch because I know it's gonna be absolute fucking crap. In which they tried, to, which um, in which the creator Matt Pat tries to figure out the value of a human soul in um in Full Metal Alchemist by by using the fact that someone's soul was lost. It's about basically the point would be the value of a human soul is the value of a human limb because in instances in the manga that someone can bring back or destroy a human soul and in doing so they lose a limb both times um and what you've missed there is that there is no hard magic there there is no logic there it's a literal divine punishment by god it is actual divine intervention a punishment upon humanity it's not a chemical reaction it's not the some value of something being played out it's literally god saying you shouldn't have done that now i'm gonna punish you that's sort of what's happening here it's it's not a world of strict logic it's a strange nebulous world in which not all can be understood so then that brings to this question is why did i not get taken away by anything else that i didn't bother questioning that because i've read soft magic i have enjoyed mystique i like books um i'm gonna think of elric's one that's just popped into my head uh michael moorcock mm-hmm. where it doesn't make a lot of sense the logic's a bit loose and you're meant to just kind of go with the adventure look at what's happening now and the character driven story I found that in American Gods, because of the more leisurely pace, that Mm. I had time to think about these other things. In the sections where Shadow is just driving from A to B, picking up a hitchhiker, I was Mm -hmm. my mind started to go, How did that work? How did you get there? What did that gold coin do? It sounds to me like what this book needed was what Alfred Hitchcock called the ice cooler moment. Where because you're so whisked away by the course of the story, you don't realise a potential, say, logical inconsistency later down the line. He talks about moments when you would be at the ice cooler uh, and then suddenly go, Hey, wait a minute! As you reflected back on the story and realised something that might not have made sense. good example would be um, in the movie The Dark Knight, when... um, when the Joker throws that woman out the window, Batman jumps after her, he rescues her, and the scene comes to an end. And you don't really realize that uh, the Joker was upstairs with the most powerful people in Gotham for like 20 minutes and didn't do anything. He just left because the scene ended. Um, you don't realize that until a long time after you finished a book. And because this book was slower and took its time, you had more time in which to think about these things which to you didn't make sense or were inconsistent or not being answered to your satisfaction. Exactly. And I think this goes back to exactly how I read this book. In very large chunks, with a day off in between. And I'm not going to... I said that's because of the prose and the ideas. It was mostly due to my schedule, you know. Mm -hmm. I had some very quiet days filled by very busy days. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd have that very quiet day. And then I'd have a day where I was doing a lot of time at work. I'd have those moments when I was at work, at the coffee machine, just going... Wait, what? Wait, so where did the coin come from? And that was sort of the, the interplay that I, I think I was having with this book. Mm. What I like about the coin, which you're talking about, Duncan, is that that's another thing that goes, that's completely unanswered. It's another mystery where um, Mad Sweeney, the leprechaun, um, takes a, uh, a golden coin, which has immense power, and he tells Shadow, 
I wasn't supposed to give you that coin. I took the one one by accident because it contains all the power of the sun. And I go, I start wondering, I start thinking the exact same thing as you do, Duncan. Um, which is like, ooh, which sun god did he take it from? Was it the actual sun? Was it a metaphysical idea of a sun? Or is it because he belongs to the Irish pantheon of gods? Did he take it from Lou, the Irish sun god and father of Cúchulain? And that's never answered, never once. Uh, but to me, that wasn't a mark against it. That was a positive. I really like that that question was never answered. You could even argue that he was stolen from Bielabog. And this is where, once again, my mind falls short. But I knew none of those gods just mentioned. <laughs> but you don't need to know any of those gods. Because it's just, he took it from a sun god. It could be Apollo. It could be Sol. So one character we haven't really touched on, or only in passing reference, is Shadow's wife. Shadow's wife, Laura. Laura. Laura, Laura, Laura. Laura did a very interesting thing in this book. Firstly, she yes. died at the very Who's start, then had a massive, lots of appearances throughout. Yes. Um, but one thing I found very interesting is at the start of this book, Neil Gaiman makes a proposition where we discover that Laura died being unfaithful mm. to Shadow. Uh, she died in a car accident with Shadow's best friend because she distracted him by giving him a blowjob while he was mm. driving. And both Shadow and the reader are sort of given this proposition, which is, by the end of the book, you're going to fall in love with Laura again. Like, that's going to feel like a really small, insignificant thing by the time this okay. is all done with. And for me, at least, I think Neil Gaiman did that. I was very surprised. Because mm -hmm. I was like, really? Really, Neil Gaiman? Did you, did you hear how outlandish you killed her off? How outrageous that was. And it sounded outrageous when I read it. And you're going to say that by the end of this, this is going to be a very cute romance and I'm going to be fully behind mm -hmm. this couple. And I think he did it. Wow. Well couple done, of murders and, and broken necks and blood and gore, you know, yeah. to the finish line. Yeah, ex exactly. Laura is in many ways um, exactly wife goals in that she will follow you around like a spectre um, killing all your enemies for you so you don't have to get your hands dirty, will vanish for months at a time, and then will suddenly show up again as you're dying to say, you are alive again. I'm so glad. Wife goals. Wife goals. That's that's what it says. That's on her Instagram. It says, just wifely things in cute script as it shows her, like, sneak up behind someone and ripping out their, his throat with her bare hands. Um, yeah, she's basically a zombie in this book. She comes back to life, but she's still slowly rotting. Um, when she finally shows up for to see Shadow dying on the tree um, as an effigy to Odin, she's like literally sneezing up maggots. It's gross. It's interesting. Okay. Oh, no, Dordie. See, and then my brain played logic with me again. Because uh -huh. then I went, wait. So did she physically crawl out of the grave? Yes. Because in the first scene, I thought it was him just seeing her. Like That's understandable. That's my, I remember thinking, this is like an apparition. But then I think, are the maggots getting in her? Surely she's still cleaning. Why doesn't I... she go north, help with her preservation? I just had questions. I was like, can she still die? She can't die. What if her body gets destroyed? Oh no. Well, it does get destroyed. I know. And then she dies. But does she still have the coin? 
Oh, she's sorry, sort of stripped apart and then she takes away the coin and then she dies. Um, the idea yeah. is the golden coin we mentioned earlier that was stolen from the sun god. Yeah. Shadow flips into the his wife's grave and it's very much implied this is what allows her to come back alive. It's stated um, in the book, yeah. She's she um, is is kept alive by the power of this magic coin, which has the power of a sun in it, and it's the power of the sun which causes Laura to come back to life, and it's the power of the moon in the silver dollar, which Zoya Polivichnaya gives to him, which allows him to come back to life because it like guides his way in the afterlife as a you know, you know, and she's the sun and, and he becomes the moon in that regard. It's you know, it's yeah, it's yes. I got that it slightly is. backward in that the, the, the moon sort of guides him in his way into death and gives him peace of mind. It's sort of the opposite of the sun in that regard. Uh, but yes, Laura does uh, dig her way out of her own grave with the power of the coin. In that first scene, she's covered in dirt and her fingernails are broken. I must not pick up on that. That's fair. Again. You know what? I... That is fair enough. It is only like a couple of lines. Neil Gaiman is really particular about the, the fact that people can read his book and, and, and they're not going to miss anything. If they read precisely, things will be quite clear. He says in the author's note at the end of Stardust that people have very smugly come up to him at conventions and told him that there's a scene where someone um, smokes uh, four cigarettes in the scene, but only actually smokes three of them. And he very says, no, 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 go back, read very carefully. You will see that someone smokes four cigarettes in that scene. Oh, now I won't need to reread Stardust just to see that scene. <laughs> this is, I felt that, I felt, I felt very much that this book needed more of me than I could give when I read it. And I think that's something to be said, which isn't a criticism of the book per se. It's a description. I think that's okay. something how, when I was trying to describe this book, again, I had a phone call with my mother. She's like, oh, what's American Gods? And I'm like, I was about two thirds of the way through. I'm like, well, there are all these plot threads. I'm not sure if they're going to come together. So I can't recommend it now unless they come together. Well, it's fantasy, but it's urban. It's not quite horror. It's certainly not a comedy or there's some dark witticism in there. And I think this is a book that you need to be able to go you need to be in the very right state to read this book. I think you need to be relaxed. Give it its time. So Give this is a, a good holiday thought. read? I think this would be a very good holiday read. A mm. very good holiday read. Not my type of holiday where you take four books with you in a week. Mm. Someone else's holiday where they take one book with them. Mm. And you and just you relax it into it. Yeah, and you just let it take you away. And you enjoy each scene as it comes. Yeah. I'm glad that you can recommend this book now, Duncan. Because everything does come together. It does come together. It does come together at the end. And because I was very much like, when we're in Lakeside and in this book, like, where is this tying back in? Mm -hmm. I say a thing, like I said earlier, Catwoman sex. Yeah, well, you know. It does not come back. It, it um, comes back, it's just pointless. I also think the other sex scene in the start of the book does come back and was also pointless. Which one's that one? Um, the one when the, the god has sex with the bloke and oh, then absorbs yeah. him into his, into her um, Great vagina. Scene. Great scene. Uh, there no apologies for that one. That one is it's sort of it's it's wonderful in demonstrating how fucked up all these gods are. If there's one thing I like about this book, um, and unabashedly what it does for fantasy as a whole, 
Neil Gaiman is not afraid to say that the old gods, who are basically the good guys in this book, Shadow chooses side. As a reader, you basically choose their side. You choose them over the new gods because the new gods are kind of a bunch of phonies, and at least these old gods keep it real, you know? And the reason why you know that is that New Gaiman is not afraid to acknowledge that these, that ancient cultures committed human sacrifice. And he's very explicit in saying, hey, the ones you like, the white ones, they committed a ton of human sacrifice. Don't just think that it's the black and brown cultures who are the ones doing the human sacrifice. Odin gets his power from human sacrifice. We are not going to shy away from that. That I like about this book. He doesn't shy away from it. I think it kind of brings this kind of moral quandary, though, of, um, so is it good that the gods are left to fate? Because I think that's something very nice I liked about the ending. It's not about mm-hmm. the old gods returning. No. It's just about, and I think, um, I think it's like the god of the internet, who's like a kind of an overweight young, like, tech nerd. A well-depicted like, character. An absolute fucking, you know, internet loser. Is the represents the power of the internet? Some fucking 4chan troll. Absolutely brilliant. But he says, like, why are we bothering to kill these guys? Yeah. Can't we just let them fade? And that's ultimately where the book ends. When I'm just kind of shrugging the chance, go, they're gonna fade yeah. because they're not needed anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. That's right. It's about essentially about the old gods coming to terms with old age that you know they will sort of decline and be somewhat forgotten and to just make peace with it because this is how things occur and in the end they have to accept an unhappy truth which is that that's the way all life comes to an end and the same thing will happen to the new gods and that they'll be replaced over time they have to make peace with it it's a lovely sentiment and i will credit neil gaiman I said I was uncertain about this book for the majority. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, still a bit, I'm not going to put this down as one of my top 10 fantasy because it, I wasn't along for a wild emotional ride. Mm-hmm. But the thoughts got there in the end. And honestly, having this uh, conversation with you, Geordie, has helped sort of clarify points and sort of shift my focus mm. for the book. Talking of the end of the book, Geordie, there's something at the end of my copy of this book which I think is quite funny. Mm-hmm. Um not funny they're very good but you get them a couple of times in the books and these are reading group discussion questions have you ever read uh, a book that have these no I've, i i think i may have seen books that had them in them and i've always ignored them because i've never been in a, in a stupid book club before Ugh. oh they're ridiculous you used to get them in the back of um, a lot of the books we do at school yeah would have them yeah, at the back right. to like um and i quite enjoy these but there's only six of them and we're okay. not going to see answer them, but I liked reading these because I'm not going to lie. They're both like, they're good conversation starters, mm-hmm. but they're all slightly congratulatory. <laughs> okay, so we've got one here. American Gods is an epic novel dealing with many big themes, including sacrifice, loyalty, share, love and faith. Which theme did affect you most strongly and why? <laughs> okay. That's definitely um, written by his publisher. That's so, this? so, it's so masturbatory. Then there's another one about Shadow. Uh, so a little yeah. description of who Shadow is, but the fact you've read the book. And then it goes at the end of it, it's like, what makes Shadow so compelling and complex? I think we've answered that one. I think we have. But good to know that he is compelling and complex. You've got to just say why. This one's quite good. America is a partly a road trip through small, uh, sorry, American Gods is partly mm-hmm. a road trip through small town America. 
where Shadow can see the darker side of other of what other people ignore. What does mm. the novel say about what people will accept in order to maintain a sense a sense of normality? That's a damn good question, and I think it's a really strong theme in the book. Uh, do, 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 let's see, what's another one? I won't go for all of them. Oh, this one. This is quite uh, self-congratulatory. How does the rich background descriptions increase the power of the narrative? I mean, I'd... I wouldn't call those background descriptions rich. I'd call them wonderfully detailed. The sort of things which I would always miss, uh, which is clearly something Neil Gaiman has written down. There's a strong sense when Shadow goes into a cafe or a restaurant that this is somewhere that Neil Gaiman has literally been, and he's written things down in his notebook and then factored into the book later. A strong sense that that is a real place. That's what I like. I wouldn't really exactly call them rich details. I guess precise or keen would be a better word. Maybe rich is appropriate. Maybe rich is. I think what they are for me is they have a very... So now we're answering the question. I just want to take a, the, the mickey out of the fact that they describe them as rich. Um, <laughs> but I think for me it's the fact that it becomes very lifting. It creates the real world American small towns, which mm-hmm. I've never been to. But it allowed me to feel very much in the space. And I think that grounded space really helped the juxtaposition with the gods. Yeah. I gotta say, Duncan, and this is something I can't believe I haven't mentioned yet, but as an American and someone who's visited America many times and someone who's lived in America, it does do a good job of capturing small-town America. The people you meet, the people you run into, the, the places they visit, the, the, the small, humble charms. Yeah, they, it, feels, it feels really... He captured it really well. That's my opinion. I will accept your opinion because, mm. yeah, I'm like, um, and I, but I do like that. I like the the difference between sort of America as presented and America as is, mm-hmm. um, and even as a, a sort of a foreign observer, it's very interesting to see the different cultures always seems to be at friction, but then I've got to view it through the lens of British media viewing it and then deciding what to show to the British people. It's quite mm. confusing to view anyone's culture from anywhere but inside of it. I think it's time to wrap it up, Dunk. I think we do. Um, closing statements from me. I'm not sure if I necessarily loved American Gods, mm-hmm. but I have enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad. And I would recommend it to people. Not so much as a, I think you'll love this, but as a, I don't think you'll regret reading this. Yeah. If you are a fan of mythology, this is a... Uh, a book you cannot miss. It has mythologies from all across the world. It dives into the origins of fakes, everything from the Stone Age settlers who first came to America, the the people who would later become indigenous Americans. It, it pictures them crossing over from Siberia. It has Norse gods. It has, it has Slavic gods. It has African gods. It has gods from all across the world from different cultures even just lightly sprinkled through um just little it's like it's like little cameos like a marvel property or something um and if you like that sort of thing do it if you're looking for the adult equivalent of you know your percy jackson something like that it's this book there should be more books like this like it's a shame that we don't have deluges of books that that capture the mythologies of other cultures. And if you want to have a conversation about uh, cultural appropriation or whatever, then it'd be super cool to get people who belong to other cultures to write about their mythologies and their beliefs um, as they appear in um, 
as they appear in a modern day setting. I'd be super jazzed to read more stuff like that. And if you know any books like that and you have um, a recommendation for us, please message us at is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com is why Duncan takes over that plugging part and tell us all about them. Just clarify that's is this just fantasy that's podcast at gmail.com. That's why I said. No worries. This we come to people, the next step. What book are we reading next? Oh. And I now, have told Duncan, I already know what book he's choosing. I told him this at our last recording session. I already know what book he's going to pick. I've written it down. I, 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 I won't, I'm not going to change it when he tells me what he's going to read. But knowing versus Duncan as I do, knowing the content of American Gods and the topic it has at hand, I know what he's going to read, what he's going to pick. So here's the thing, everyone. I don't really pick these necessarily week to week. I, I kind of have a, I have a short list. Um, it's only about five books long of the books I kind of I want to get through. I want to bring to this book club. And having read American Gods, I've had to change that because reading the themes of sort of urban fantasy, reading about sort of the death of gods and so the adventures that the characters go on i really found there was only one book i wanted to pick and this book this book is quite special to me because this book really helped kickstart me into reading after i sort of fallen out the habit i say fell out the habit it had been about it had been about three weeks uh but that that was quite long for me i want to say that what i really think about this book is first thing i think it has a beautiful cover in fact, when I really was trying to find a book to get me reading again, I basically pulled this off the shelf because I liked the look of it. Geordie. Yes, Duncan. It's night's time. We are going to read. Let's say it together. Three, <gasps> two, one. Small Gods by Terry Square. Pratchett. Gareth Hanronham. I didn't hear what you said. Did you hear what I said? You said Small Gods by Terry Pratchett. I did. What did you say? I said The Gutter's Prayer by Gareth Hanrahan. I don't know what that is. I can't believe I was wrong. <laughs> Damn it. Oh, what I found so satisfying about that is I, I knew. I knew your thoughts, Geordie. And yeah. I said those words. I was like, everything I've just said is completely true, people. This is the book that I read basically because I like the cover. Okay. I went, oh, that looks interesting. And it did get me back into reading after a bit of a, a dry spell. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry if I've mispronounced the author's name. I will make sure I've got that right by the time uh, next week. Um, if you guys have read this book, The Gutter's Prayer, please tell us your thoughts so we can analyse the next episode. Uh, read in the fortnight. Join us then. And great to see you all. I can't believe you betrayed Terry Pratchett. Eh, he's already had a book. So no gaming, actually. Bye. I'm real mad about this. Bye, everyone. See you in a fortnight. Tilly, please. Tilly! How dare you. Respect for gods.